help? Go to the town hall. The Citizens' Council promises help and advice to everyone. Their Citizens' Council? As far as I'm concerned, what's theirs is yours. I won't go for it. Whatever it is. So you may as well stop trying. We never stop number six. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on the degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. I know we're going to have a good episode here, buddy. Do you? Yeah, because I gave you a drug yesterday. Oh, I see. It's one, one of the new super strength Moprobamates that we've developed. <laughs> yep. Didn't know what that word is. You don't know anything about it, of course, but uh, the drug remains dormant until triggered by the nervous yeah. system, then releases itself in the desired quantities to produce instant tranquility or temporary oblivion. Yeah, there's a lot of talking about the machinations to change a dude's watch. This is a thing we're going to talk about, Chris. <laughs> we could change the dude's watch at any point, but we need all these machinations. I think you should be careful what you wish for, my friend, because you asked a week ago when we were discussing Hammer and Anvil, how long is a kosho match? Mm, and in this episode, God. You, <laughs> you, you get the answer to that question. <laughs> oh, this is clearly an episode that came in five minutes under, and they were like, could we just, can we goose the kosho? Goose the kosho, I say. All right. So I, I did check myself to make sure I, I know of what I speak here. The kosho match in this episode, which is It's Your Funeral, mm-hmm. number 11. This one goes to 11. A lot of the kosho match that we see play out over, I think it's about two minutes of screen time in this episode, oh does clearly feature Basil Hoskins, who played number 14 in Hammer into Anvil. He's oh. not the actor who begins and ends the Kasha sequence in this episode, not the the good-natured fellow who bows to McGowan at the beginning of the match, and once again, after McGowan dunks him in the water, fair and square, following the rules, according to Hoyle, not the, uh, you know, no-holds-barred Kasha that they were clearly, obviously playing in Hammer into Anvil, right. which anyone would know, anyone would see how they are putting the gentlemanly rules of Kasha aside. They were not playing Queensberry rules of Kasho. Says so right in the script. But yeah, so we start off with this guy who uh, accepts his defeat and bows to him, but there are at least three shots where you can clearly see <laughs> that it's Basil Hoskins. Oh. <laughs> and like the <sighs> the costume, the uniform that you wear to play Kasho, it should be waterproof. It shouldn't just like hang off you once you get dunked in the tank, right? If, it, if, if getting yeah. dunked in the tank is the finish of the game, they should make allowances for that. Right, no, and I, I thought these were like flight suits that they were wearing, but they're not. It, it looks like they're cotton. Since we get yep. a, no a more protracted look at them uh, in this episode, it allows revelations like the fact that they are wearing Converse Chucks. Yep. And Kasho, the worst goddamn athletic shoe no ever devised. No art support at all. 
No. When I watch Rocky, I love Rocky. The hard part for me is not watching him get pummeled for 40 minutes at the end. It is watching him do his road work in those knee-destroying, ankle-crushing, converse chucks. That is harder for me to watch than when he cracks five eggs into that glass and Mm -hmm. just drinks it down, Glenn. Yep, yep, yep. Plantar fasciitis is just calling his name. Really yep. So the reason that we're discussing Rocky in such detail mm-hmm. is that in 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create yeah, a new did. series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where most residents are referred to only by <laughs> number. Asterisk. Uh-huh. <laughs> Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time, the short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. That's why we're here, Glenn. That's why we're we here. this show. We are all of us prisoners, but having The Prisoner 54 years later available for us to revisit again and again and again, mm-hmm. it, it makes our confinement a little more tolerable. Absolutely. We are prisoners of our love for this show, complicated as it sometimes is. That's why we took it upon ourselves all these decades later to create a private, personal, by hand, punch card driven podcast where we take this defunct, but uh, defunct, but not debunked. Oh, see? Yeah. Look at that. Show. Oh, boy, that's off the dome. I could, I could see your eyes searching mm-hmm. as you came up with that. So I know <laughs> it was not pre written, and I appreciate that. You know what we do with it, Chris? What do we, what do, we do with it? Chris? Here's what we do with it we push it. Like the beginning of the chorus of a 1978 disco anthem by Musique that received limited airplay due to its sexually suggestive lyrics. Huh? Anything? Is disco not your metier, Chris? I did not think it was. Huh? That's not the. That's not the person who did pop music. No, it's not. Uh, the right. song is called uh, "In the Bush." The chorus is "Push, push in the bush." It's filthy. Uh, and I love it. I gotta give it a six. I'm no McGowan. I'm no prude. Six out of six. I, I appreciate that. We file it like Superman's anal retentive distaff cousin, Fiel. Fiel. Five out of six. Oh, really? Okay. That was more than I was going to give it. Uh, we index it right after we in W it, but right before we in the in Y and in Z it. Six out of six. Got a considered degree of difficulty. And, uh, <laughs> it's true. Um, sweatiness should factor in here somehow. I cannot go against my own kind. Is, is this sweatiness a sin that I that That's I true. You are cannot man. forgive? Those of us who live in extremely humid houses should not throw Okay, that's more than I stones. need to know about your house. Okay. We stamp it like it's a commercial or legal paper, newspaper, pamphlet, card, or almanac, and we're the British Parliament in 1765 who needs to raise money to pay for British troops stationed in the colonies during the Seven Years' War. Wow. Somebody has not been missing his lectures from the general. Yeah, Six out true. of six. Good, good work. Good work. Yep. We brief it like it's the encounter about which David Lean made a 1945 romantic drama written by Noel Coward based on this play still life. See, these aren't here to be funny, Chris. These are just here to teach the children. Teach the children the history. Right. That's my, yeah. that's my, that's my right. remit. That's, that's why I'm going to give that one a four out of six. It would have been like a six out of six, except I already did brief encounter. You I did? did that like two episodes ago. Okay. Yeah, I sure did. You gave me either a five or a six for it. So All right. I'm taking a point off for uh, recycling, no, even though recycling it's, is uh, it's good. Firm but fair, I would say. We debrief it like it's the streaker who ran across the stage behind David Niven at the 1974 Oscars. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. I got to give you a six for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, when he immediately recovered and said that that poor man had to show us his shortcomings. Very, very 
David Niven, you can't flap him. He's unflappable. You can't. You can try to flap him. Wow. Don't try. No. The the fact that David Niven was James Bond in the 1967 Casino Royale that puts him right in the center of a milieu makes him extremely relevant to the present discourse. Six out of six. Okay. And we number it like the blessings Rosemary Clooney counts instead of sheep when she is worried and cannot sleep. See, we, we end it with a niceness, a little, a little oh, nice, a little, little gentleness. That's so pleasant. I know, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, boy. I, I hope I'll be able to summon the energy to, to continue when, when all I want to do <laughs> is have a nap. Yep, yep. So that's what we so do. So five out of six, just because, you know, I don't feel like I could operate heavy machinery now, but it's, <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> So we're going to talk McGoons, we're going to talk MacGuffins. Yeah, we are. Our inquiry, Glenn, into this still perplexing document is not of a degree capricious. Mm. It is not of a degree faddish. These are new adjectives. I like this. It is not of a degree TL semicolon DR. Oh, oh, look at you with the, bringing with the kids today and their, and their language uh-huh. and their, and their uh, like the phone booth stuffing and the, and the goldfish swallowing. Look at you. Finger what of the pulse. What is it? It's a degree absolute, Chris. If you say so. I do. In fact, I do. Okay, so we've had a number of people bring to our attention that Leo McCurran on Rumpel of the Bailey does not refer to no, his spouse as she who must not be named. Yeah, well, I don't uh, know who, uh, who uh, would uh, say that. She who must be obeyed. Okay, I get it. I, I've never seen the show. I thought it like there was a there was an imperative uh-huh. that involved she who. So the only reason I'm bringing this up is because it, it is an unforced error, right? It's like mm-hmm. when I said uh, in the Schizoid Man episode, these foils of all the length. I, my good lord, and I'm like, oh, isn't that when Horatio dies? Uh, totally unnecessary. Yeah. Even within the tangent tolerant milieu of this podcast. There's no reason to say, oh, and what else happens in Hamlet? I just introduced an error for no reason. Kind of like when you corrected yourself about uh, Jack O'Halloran and, and Richard Keel and you insisted on calling him Richard Kyle. Like that? Maybe that, like that? Something I don't, th- like that? I don't think that's in the same the same league. Mm-hmm. So you're saying it, it's Keel? It's Keel. K-I-E-L. Look, all I know is uh, <laughs> people frequently ask me how to pronounce my last name, and I tell them, but I also don't care if anyone mispronounces it. Where'd you get this bunch of Taylor's dummies? Do you wish to question them? I do. Proceed. Boy, is this going to fit into our uh, narrowly permissive guidelines for on-air correspondence? Not too much praise. We'll see. Mark Metkiewicz writes, and again, in light of what I just said, if I mispronounce anyone's uh, last name, it is not intentional, and I apologize. Nice cover. Dear Chris and Glenn, I want to thank you so much for Degree Absolute. I grew up in Toronto, where The Prisoner was broadcast first in the world, even before Britain. That's true, right. Hmm. Do we know how that occurred? I have no idea, but that's a thing. When I finally caught up with The Prisoner in the 1970s, it was broadcast on the nascent Ontario Educational Communications Authority nowadays simply called TV Ontario. As an educational broadcast, each episode was dutifully followed by a panel discussion of smart people who attempted to discuss, dissect, and debate what the heck just happened, not unlike what you're doing. Uh Well, that sounds kind of cool. Like HBO does a lot of that now, right? With like Mm -hmm. after Game of Thrones or whatever. There's several clips in in my mind, that documentary that you can Mm -hmm. get... uh, floating around everywhere. There's a clip of McGowan actually talking to somebody in kind of a panel discussion environment. I know it's Canadian. I wonder if it's connected. Yes, uh, Mark included a clip okay. here. And I think our friend uh, Mike Michelle. I believe it's the same same interview, same panel discussion that, mm-hmm. that uh, Mike sent to us. Possible. 
I guess the OECA had a strong connection to the show. In 1977, it was able to wrangle Patrick McGowan into their studios for a feature interview, which Lore has it. right. was the only one he ever gave, or at least the only one. And uh, this is the one rebel that they can't break. <clears throat> to what end was that process of breaking down the individual will? To what end? Mm-hmm. For the village. What was the purpose, the goal? I think it's going on every day all around us. I had to sign in to get into this joint. Mm-hmm. Downstairs, too. yeah. Made you angry, too? Slightly, yeah. <laughs> yes. right. uh, pass keys, you know, and let's go down to the basement and all this. That's prisonership as far as I'm concerned. And that makes me mad. And that makes me rebel. And that's what the prisoner was doing, was rebelling against that type of thing. But can you, in everyday life, can you can you summon the will and the energy to rebel every time that oh, you petty can't. indignity occurs? You can't, otherwise you go crazy. You have to live with it. That's what makes us prisoners. How much psychic attrition is there, spiritual attrition? I don't understand in that. Not rebelling. How much do you give away or lose? How high is the cost of not rebelling every time? Of ulcers. not complaining every time? Ulcers. Do you have ulcers? I have a couple. Bad ones? Not too bad. They're getting worse as we go minute by minute. <laughs> anyway, I have been a fan of your show and your podcast has been a delightful reason for... Okay. <laughs> Glenn's shaking his head. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for writing. Jen Zucco. Or Zuko. She sent us a couple emails. She pointed out the Iron Maiden song, The Prisoner, which mm-hmm. is always the one I forget about, Glenn. I, always, I do remember Back in the Village because that's on Power Slave, which I had on cassette in the 80s. I think The Prisoner is on an album that predates my, my metalhead phase. Oh, God. You had a metalhead phase? That makes sense. It makes so much sense, but it didn't <laughs> occur to me. Questions. What is on Power Slave? Is that it? No, the, the title of the album is Power Slave. Oh, uh, the title of the album is Power Slave. By? By Iron Maiden. By Iron Maiden, okay. All right. It has All right. A, All right. A Two Minutes to Midnight, Ace is High, a metal song about like World War II dogfighting. It's very English. I mean, it makes sense why they'd be, <laughs> they would love okay. the prisoner. I think there's a quotation from Churchill that opens the album. Sure. Wow. <laughs> Can you see my eyes glazing over? Because my eyes are glazing over. Can you hear, listeners, can you hear my eyes glaze over? So what does Jen have to say? Well, um, she pointed that out. She also, uh, she said she was inspired by you on, um, must have been Checkmate episode. Is Checkmate the first one where you... uh, I think so. Got off the bench and decided to uh, Mm -hmm. assist with with intro duties. Put me in coach. I'm ready to play today. She she submitted her own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We will push it. Push it real good. Uh, solid, solid choice. I th- yeah, I know it is. I'm like, I mean, I, th- I think, I, I think I said push it like salt and pepper. Yep, the, yep. I mean, no, course, sure. It's but a again. great minds, great minds. File it like a nail. Okay, that's cool. got the pith that ours so often do not. That is very true. Index it as though it's on a three by five card. Sure, sure. Again, I like I like this is uh this is the simplicity. It's deceptively simple. Jen respects the listener's time. (laughs) (laughs) Stamp it like a toddler throwing a tantrum. Again, right. Get right to it. Don't overthink it. Just Mm -hmm, get right mm -hmm. to it. 
establish it. Surgical strike, in and out. Brief it as though we're a message giving directions to an impossible mission, which will then self-destruct. Sure, I think you did I, that, didn't you? I, I did, I did, but again. Again, the parameters are appreciate. astonishingly <laughs> narrow here, so I mean. <laughs> Debrief it like a burlesque dancer. Okay, sure, sure. I thought they, burlesque they, dancers yeah, they would, they don't I mean, you know, completely... I'm not arguing with, with, uh, with Jen about this. Jen is um, a professional fight director and intimacy coordinator for theater. So she which, would know, right? She yes, would know absolutely. what's a brief absolutely. and what's not a brief. I wrote a, a feature for the City Paper a few years ago about uh, The Girl in the Red Corner, a, a play by um, Stephen Spotswood here in here in D.C. where he uses um, mixed martial arts as, as sort of a storytelling device. It's about a, a woman who becomes an MMA fighter. And it was in writing that story that I learned that there is a lot of overlap among those those two disciplines, people who do fight choreography, fight direction, and uh, intimacy coordination, which had not occurred to me before, but makes perfect sense. It you does know, make sense. We have, have to keep actors safe. We have to serve the needs of the story, but allow everyone to, to feel and be safe. Mm-hmm. So totally, totally get it. Number it, like an animated musical sequence appearing frequently on Sesame Street. Sing with me again. One, two, three, four, five, six. No, I think I'm. It's coming back to me. One, two, three, four, five, nope, six, nope. seven, one, two, eight, three, nine. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's what she's doing. That's what she's referencing. I guarantee you. <laughs> she might be doing well, Ladybug Picnic now that you're saying, it, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Ladybug, Ladybug. But I think it's. I, I'm almost certain it's that pinball machine. Four, five, okay. six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I think that's it. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Jen. Thank you, Jen. Hey, that was fun, and I agree. It's harder than one might expect. Thanks for letting me try. And thanks for the I'm omitting a complimentary adjective podcast. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. And listeners appreciate that, I think. I, we, you don't want to hear. <laughs> no. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. A beautiful young girl in danger is used to decoy the prisoner into intrigue and assassination in It's Your Funeral. We are in this prison for life, all of us. But I've met no one here who has committed a crime. Some other way, then. Not by an act of murder. Assassination! Call it what you like. The important matter is that the entire village will be punished. The prisoner is forced to protect the tyrant who would destroy him in the next desperate adventure of The Prisoner on this channel. Keep away! Episode 11, It's Your Funeral, mm-hmm. distinguishes itself because on the oft-referred-to-by-me documentary, Don't Knock Yourself Out, on the, the Prisoner Blu-ray set, this is the episode that features the most open shitting on Patrick McGowan by <laughs> two cast members of this episode, Darren Nesbitt, our mm-hmm. number two, and Annette Andre, who plays... Number 50, I think it is, I think the it's number 50, daughter. Yeah. Let us celebrate the fact that the art department has had a bump up in budget in this episode, apparently, and made not one, but two new badges, because we have a number 50 and a number 100. We do. One of them, since you like to keep track of this, uh, on uh, number 50, Annette Andre, Watchmaker's Daughter, is one of those black badges. Oh, I love that it. You, I love it so much. you like so much. More styling. It's like when you switch Twitter over to nighttime. It's, it looks much cooler. Yeah. So neither of them had anything very good to say about Mr. McGowan. The uh, devil, Nesbitt, you say? Yeah. Nesbitt confessed to playing the, the entire episode in a, a state of befuddlement. Mm. 
And I think he's very good. I'll say I think however confused he was, I think the the outcome is good. Just as uh, I am constantly praising this show for surreality and um, dreamlike narrative inconsistency that, again, is the product of, of them just not having their ducks in a row most of the time and McGowan and Markstein fighting constantly and... Mm-hmm script writers getting contradictory instructions from the story editor and from the star and executive producer of the show, all those reasons. So McGowan hired his buddy Robert Asher to direct this episode. Okay. Uh, Asher confessed to Nesbitt that he didn't understand the script, but he asked Nesbitt if he had a better handle on it. Nesbitt said, no, I have no clue. Asher said, well, they've told me I can see the first episode. It's called Arrival, um, so I'll watch that and then come back and talk to you. Came back, said he still didn't understand what the hell the premise of the show was or, or what the stakes of the episode were. Nesbitt did say that McGowan, who replaced Asher as director, I don't know how deep into shooting it was. Um, Asher still retains his credit as director of this episode. It's not a, you know, McGowan in name directed episode or, Fitz. A, nope. or a Joseph Surf or Patty Fitz directed episode. But McGowan publicly apoplectically dressed down and, and fired his director in front of the whole cast and crew, which Annette Andre, the watchmaker's daughter, number 50, said from, from this man who she had already found to be cold, remote, hard to read, Amazing. an ungenerous scene partner. Yeah. But when, when he did that, she said, I hated every single minute of it. Yeah, I think it was down to Patrick, totally. Patrick, well, it's no secret that I just loathed Patrick. From, from the minute I started, I tried to be nice, I tried to be, and he doesn't work with actresses at all well. What are you doing here? I was just going to wake you up. You have. Who are you? He had a crashing row with Bob Asher and tore him apart in front of the entire studio, crew, everything. And in my set of ethics, you don't do that to an actor and you certainly don't do it to your director. I finished the whole thing, but it I hated that. I hated the whole thing. <laughs> and I mean, she was all over these ITV series of this time. She described herself as the most used bird, that's her <laughs> phrase, on The Saint. So she was, uh, she was a face that people who were, were watching these Lou Grade mm-hmm. ITV shows mm-hmm. would know. But she and Nesbitt both had a miserable experience working with McGoon. Nesbitt said, The number two that I play, if you ever see him, is played in total confusion. He has no idea what is going on. And McGoon came up to me and he said, This is not a comedy. Why are you doing it? You look like you don't know what it's about. I said, I've got no bloody idea what it's about. You tell me what it's about. He said, Well, I'm not sure. So I played him totally confused. I will say that even if you love Darren Nesbitt's performance, as I do, you will find it a very mannered performance, you agree? Uh, full of ticks, full of business with the, with his eyeglasses, all that with his spectacles. He puts a little mustard on every single yeah. line reading. The glasses acting is Christopher Reeve level. From- <laughs> Absolutely. He everything he does, he's either taking off his glasses or peering over his glasses or <laughs> manipulating his glasses. Everything has a pause or a stammer in it, but I don't hate it because I thought the director was giving him free reign. It really feels like he's going to just kind of settle in and have a lot of fun. 
Um, I also am surprised to hear that about uh, about the the woman who plays the watchmaker's daughter, which is yeah. her, her official uh, title. In the, uh-huh. original. Annette but, Andre, right? Annette Andre, who plays uh, she has a name, Monique. We we learn it. By the way, the watchmaker is German, clearly German, right? He names his daughter Monique. She was likely born during or immediately after World War II. So there is a whole story there. I want that story. <laughs> yeah. I want that rom com. Right there. Too. I did kind of get stuck on the fact that in this episode we find out that the village has a shop that makes nothing but watches and clocks. So why did number six go to the goddamn general store to buy a cuckoo clock in the last episode? <laughs> and the general store, for the first and last time ever, has a selection of cuckoo clocks for him yep. to choose from. Yep. Why yep. didn't he just go to a specialty shop since the village has one, Glenn? Yeah, I know. That's a thing. Um, I really thought that his relationship, Six's relationship with Monique, the watchmaker's daughter, um, it, it, it evolves into respect. It evolves into... <laughs> right, a, I'm sorry, are you referring to the girl Monique? The girl Monique. Uh, it's almost his most adult relationship with another human being. Uh, it, it's by the end. In the beginning, he jujitsus her and says, get out! You know, like, but, but in the, in the, in the, eventually, <laughs> it's a normal thing. Yeah. All right, so... Yeah. We begin with the default Q&A in the village. Why does Nesbitt not do it? I didn't understand that. There isn't a fake out. We know he, he yeah. would have been great. He would have he would have tossed it off. He would have been it would have been so great. There'd been a stammer. There'd be a pause. We do get an insert shot. This is not a freshly recorded Robert Rietti recitation of those nope. lines either. That is clearly like just the same audio same that one. we have heard in prior episodes. I thought it was something that didn't happen often, but apparently that's the default. And I I I, I thought they would throw in the the different number twos in there, but they didn't. So Darren Nesbitt is this number two. He's blonde. He's got dreamy blue eyes. He does a lot of business with his eyeglasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is still kicking. He's 85 years young. He was born Darren Horwitz. So Nesbitt was a choice. It is a very, very British choice. Wow. And one that he made. So uh, we begin with a woman whom some refer to number 50, but I don't see a number on that badge. Did you see a number on that awesome badge? Um, I'm looking at a still photo of her from yeah. the episode. And, um, I don't see it. It, it, it. Yeah, it looks like it's just, uh, it's it's one of the white on black badges, one of the rarer, yep. you know, uh, cooler. Red, but it looks like it looks like it's just the white penny farthing bike on a black background. I don't right. see a number either. Uh, she walks up to and then into Six's apartment. This is observed by the supervisor and number two. She tries to wake him uh, and he jujitsus her. He, he totally <laughs> ha. Uh, demanding who she is, it's like a coiled snake, like a coiled snake. Um, she says. I'm a number. Does it matter which? And she's not wearing a number on her badge. And she's asking the important questions because does it matter what number she is? Yes, I would say it does. I would say that the higher number you are, the lower like access of information uh-huh. you're given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, no, she's no. asking Whatever that question. And here is where we learn that his habit of hitting the final consonant of a word for emphasis extends to the sibilance as well. He says, what's theirs is yours. Which uh, you know, that's that's a choice. That's a that's a big bold mm-hmm. choice. She has come to him for help, which he refuses loudly because he is talking to the observers. <laughs> Go back. Tell them I was not interested. That I wouldn't even listen. What's the point? They know already. I won't go for it. 
Whatever it is! And asks her to leave, at which point the time-release drug, which you mentioned earlier, which is triggered by her nervous system, kicks yes. in. One of the new super-strength Moprobamates, Glenn. Moprobamates, is that what... Did you look at the <laughs> subtitles? Is that what Moprobamates? Is that a word? She was given a drug yesterday, one of the new super-strength Moprobamates that we've developed. She doesn't know anything about it, of course. Yo, I should go to the subtitles. I, only, I just played back the audio okay. a few times. I didn't because you can't trust the subtitles on Amazon. Uh-huh. They are just fat, sure, fast, no, they're like and loose, jazzy crime music jazzy and crime uh, music. pygmies, which turns out to be an accurate translation. Although we did no, the, the Amazon subtitles said something else. We see the supervisor saying "at last," which we don't understand immediately. Yeah, who apparently got his job back after being very I mean, dramatically you fired you in, the, in the last you episode. I guess those puppy dog eyes worked <laughs> underneath the spectacles. Number two and the supervisor have some back and forth here. It's very performance review, very middle management. Uh, about Yeah, you know, no, the supervisor. Took some initiative. Yeah. Exactly. He decided that number six's door should be left open so that the watchmaker's daughter, the girl Monique, wouldn't have to knock on the door. Mm-hmm. They talk about this for some time. They do. And what I really like about this is that at last the people running the village are demonstrating some specific insight into number six's personality beyond just, oh, he's superhuman. He may not even be human. He's the toughest case I've ever handled, uh, all that. What I mean is to make him care about a woman, they have to persuade him that she is helpless. Yeah. And knowing that, they drug her so that she'll pass out in his apartment. (laughs) And while number two is dressing down the supervisor, he is in this amazing red paisley robe, which is a power fucking move. To be in your pajamas while you are dressing down a a subordinate is like, I don't even have to dress. You are here, and I'm in my pajamas because you got me out of bed, and wow, that is like, that is some Dale Carnegie, (laughs) It's it's the thing that Dale Carnegie never said. Okay, so number 50 is going to Six's place. I, I guess it's supposed to be early in the morning because he's, he's still asleep, and number two is in his bathrobe. Dressing gown. But this was, yeah. I wouldn't say bathrobe. Okay. That dressing gown. It's silk. It's Sorry. Red, it's, silk, it's red silk paisley. <laughs> it's not a bathrobe. Yeah. Very Hugh Hefner, I thought. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm, uh, exactly. That's what it's evoking. So this is happening early in the morning. Yep. That was a little puzzling to me. Yep. When she awakes, he deduces that she's been drugged, which you'd think they would work a little harder, but okay, Mm -hmm. and agrees to listen, but because now she is a lady in distress, and number two's plan, we learn, which he is both incredibly proud of and incredibly protective of, is to use her without her knowing that they are using her. And at one point, she says something like, it's about the, the welfare of the village, and number six immediately rejoins, and welfare is our biggest consumer item. And I was like, ooh, sick burn. And then I thought, yeah. I, I don't understand what that means. I have no <laughs> idea what that means. What does that mean? Welfare is our biggest consumer. Chris, help me out here. Um, A consumer item yeah. being wealth. I don't understand it. Don't get it. Don't sure. understand no, what this means. I, it, it's, it's the, I don't know, that's public messaging for omni-consumer products. I don't. Uh, it's, I, it's, it's meant to be like, aha, sasa. Yeah. La mot juste. And I'm like, I, la mot what? I don't get it. Uh-huh. Tell them I am not interested. That's <laughs> yes, right. You needn't bother. <laughs> yep. Uh, she mentions uh, jamming to him at this point. Yeah. She says, uh, we're jamming. 
She's like, dude, do you remember when George Harrison was posthumously okay. inducted I knew, into the I Rock knew and there was Hall of Fame thing. in 2004 okay, okay. And, and Prince played that fucking solo on um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps? I remember that because I'm really into jamming. Okay. All right. That's yours. Here's mine. Okay. She uh, says, she says, we're jamming. We're jamming. <laughs> And we hope okay. you like jamming too. Okay. That's what no, you said. This is this is a Bobby McFerrin free podcast, Glenn. I, I, <laughs> that is I also we that, had, we had made that is that Bob clear. Marley, you Philistine, thou Philistine! <laughs> How dare you call Bobby McFerrin Bobby? Sorry, How dare you? I, that's because uh, we the next episode re, is "Don't I Worry, re, Me I Happy." Re. Don't Don't Worry, Be Happy is the <laughs> yes episode twelve. So at this point, uh, we see number two. He gets a call from number one. On the yellow phone, man, this show, yep. man, it's yep. going to no, break it. me. I knew it. The show's going to break me, Chris. <laughs> I can't. I can't even. And we learn <laughs> about the plan. Number 50 took much longer than she was supposed to, which is what that at last was about, to make up her mind to approach six. And they needed her to approach six because he brings credibility without which the plan might backfire. I love, uh-huh. I love the fact that they say backfire <laughs> as opposed to backfire. Right. Uh, it's a, no. So the, the way that that Brits refer to the weekend, uh, mm-hmm. on the weekend, yeah, on the I weekend. I love it. I love it. Never, mm-hmm. ever not entertaining to me. Everybody's we're king for the weekend. <laughs> we're yeah. king for the weekend. And number two here, Darren Nesbitt. God love him. He's doing such great phone business. He suggests through his mouth movements alone mm-hmm. that number one keeps interrupting him. So he will talk and then all of a sudden stop. Uh, he does that people thing that people in media do where they're repeating what the other person on the end of the line says, which is not how people talk on the phone, but he makes it look so easy. He says, yes, yeah. of course, yes, we, we want it to be I, I feel like that that's a real like hostage negotiation technique, mm-hmm. right? The mirroring, like you're supposed to say mirroring, the, the thing yes, that they, they say back to them so it makes them feel like you understand them and you're listening. And I love, I love how he starts talking and then he puts his tongue out because he's been interrupted. I love it. <laughs> I want today's activity prognosis on number six. Quickly as possible. So then we get the activities prognosis on number six. This takes a while. But he gets so much done early in the day. He gets so much activity. Today's activities prognosis on number six. Number two required. 6.30, takes a walk. 7.30, gymnastics workout. 6.30 a.m. Subject exercises daily with a walk round the village. Daily subject climbs the bell tower. Reason unknown. Subject eccentric. Certainly watching, waiting, constantly aggressive. Is possible that subject likes the view. 7.30 a.m. Physical workout with subject's homemade apparatus. So he walks around the village, he climbs the bell tower. His stunt double does an amazing CrossFit routine in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's clearly someone else on oh, the uneven boy. bars. But it is McGowan in close-up hitting the heavy bag. But Which he's made? He does, he's made a heavy bag? He's made a heavy bag out of nothing? I don't know. You get a sack of... What? Sell what? a canvas sack of something and fill it with sand. Shavings? I don't know. They've, they've cedar shavings? Beach. What's they're he doing? Beach. They've got, okay. they've got sand. They got he's sand. very resourceful, Glenn. That's... He's incredibly resourceful. Okay. When he is doing the move where he is swinging from the uneven bars and kicking the bag, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, is he just mm-hmm. practicing like that one one move for fight scenes where you jump and grab something overhead and then kick the person in front of you with both feet? Is apparently, that what that was? Apparently, yep. 
All right. I've, I've never seen any anyone do that in any gym. I mean, I have been in boxing gyms. I've been in regular gyms. I've been in CrossFit gyms. I'd like that. That is unique. He is him. uh, teaching himself uh, gym kata, gymnastic skills. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Matt Singer, if you're hearing this, you're welcome on the show at any time. We get a little bit more behind the scenes of the village. We learn about Six's day. This is not yet made clear to us that this is not what he actually does. This is what the computer is projecting that he does. It's a a weird mix here. It's not quite Uh clear here. I know. And I'm also like, again, we're, we're jumping around. But after 11 episodes... Of where's number six? I can't find number six. Then this episode, like they have a fucking geotag in him, like he's he's got a bug on, a, on <laughs> that, that lucite map of the village. The map. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Yes. Eight fifteen a.m. The subject cooling off. He then cools off by what? Water skiing. Let's stop right here. <laughs> Let's stop. Right here. There are many many things that number six would never do. Number one, Lombada the Forbidden Dance. That's number one. Number two, uh-huh. decoupage. <laughs> That's understood. <laughs> number three, sweating to the oldies. Number four, water skiing. <laughs> he is not a water skier. I wouldn't, you can't like tell if somebody is a water skier by looking at them, but like everything we know, it's not a thing you can do on your own. You can't be a gruff like loner. I'm no uh, sailor, but I, I always thought you needed a speedboat to do it yes or what what they refer to in miami vice the 2006 movie version which film twitter has come around to recognize as a masterpiece that went underrated at the time whatever what they refer to glenn as go fast boats oh really i thought a cigarette boat was what what it was called it used to be called a cigarette boat when i was a lad yeah well you know smoking has fallen out of favor in miami vice again 2006 miami vice glenn not 1984 miami vice i don't know they call them go fast boats. So I think you need a go fast boat to water ski. And given what number six has gotten up to with rafts, <laughs> thinking but we have seen. If he finds himself, if he gets access to a go fast boat, his first priority is not going to be recreation. I mean, we'll come back to that because he's given a golden <laughs> opportunity to escape the village at the end of this episode and he chooses not to take it. Also, it's like, no, I'm more of a raft guy. I'm more of a starvation <laughs> at sea guy. I'm more of a sleeping four hours a goddamn night trying not to fall off my raft. I've never seen a night. Uh, we have seen the speedboat that the village keeps just mm-hmm. there. So here's my other point about this whole section. The, the village offers its <laughs> residents water skiing. The village is pretty fucking great. <laughs> I mean, the village, quit your belly yeah. aching, dude. It's just, just go water skiing and relax and have a coffee at the cafe. Come on. You get water skiing? Come on. That's fun. Yeah. And I think it's it's possible that your your pitch here is going to find purchase in the heart of, of number six, because later in this episode, when he is at the cafe with number 50, mm-hmm. they're both enjoying their coffees. Number six puts in a sugar cube, Glenn. He does. A sugar cube. Sounds to me like he's gotten over his fear of death. He's jamming. He could be jamming. <laughs> I hope you like jamming too. I hope you like sugar too. Nine o'clock a.m. Coffee at cafe and buy his newspaper. Why would he buy a tally ho, Chris? The tally ho is nothing but propaganda. Why would he buy it? I I don't know. Right. I don't know. He because he wants to find out whether the number two has a you know proposal to increase security, <laughs> um, and he wants to read about himself speaking his mind. Apparently. Nine twenty a.m. Subject will proceed on foot to old people's home for a game of chess ending with an 11-move checkmate win by subject. 
he wins a chess game at the Old People's Home in 11 moves. I wish that was impressive to me. I don't know what that means. He sits for his portrait. Subject humors other eccentric resident by sitting for portrait. Or perhaps subject has ulterior motive. All of this gets put into um, a long-ass CVS receipt that is given to number and, eight. And hang, hang on. That portrait, is that another modernist dig? Yep. When we see the, yes, the reveal of the, like, couple of geometric shapes, and he's like, a perfect likeness. And yeah. by the way, the lamest, the <laughs> lamest critique of modern art. Yeah, it's not yeah. my likeness. You're moved. Sorry. What they do with these jammers is talk. They talk about the plots they've been hatching. Plots? Well, escapes mostly, but uh, plans and developments for all kinds of mischief. They do it to confuse the observers. Still, please. So, so sorry. The plots they talk about are always make-believe. Non-existent. A control can't know that until they've checked them out. Used to run themselves ragged investigating the schemes of jammers. Used to? Well, they don't bother much anymore. Now they keep a list of all known jammers. Anything control picks up from these, they just let ride. I see. What do you think? Perfect likeness. So yes, so number eight is his uh, person in charge of his monitoring, I don't know, his prognosis, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, she's got a very smart hat, I like her. So back in the Green Dome, number two is talking to a young man about Plan Division Q. The young man, uh, number uh, 100, who's played by Mark Eden, is, is mm -hmm. in charge of Division Q. Right. And he's very confident that his cover as a prisoner is intact. While Six is posing for his portrait, the artist, number 118, tells him about jammers. They talk about fictitious plots to escape, mm -hmm. to sabotage, to confuse the authorities. This... Yeah, he's like, hey, have you heard the the version of Midnight Rambler okay. on uh, Get Your right. Yaya's Out? Because it blows the version on Let It Bleed out of the water. That harp solo from Mick Jagger is... Uh... Okay. Sorry, what were you saying? I don't uh... understand what you're talking about. You're a straight person, and I do not understand anything of what you just said. But I'm going to say, this is very smart. This is what the village would do. In a surveillance state, this is uh -huh. what you do to confound your observers. Like... Right. There should be more about this. This should not just be like a one-off thing that's like a subplot, a, a, a C-plot in an episode. This should right. be a it thing. It shouldn't be a one-off thing like every goddamn thing <laughs> on this show. <laughs> this should be his whole life is just jamming, just pretending. Uh -huh. just, like, it's, this it's is my what he should life. do. It is, is it really jamming? jamming? <laughs> I hope you like jamming too. Number eight reports to number two with her activities prognosis what number six will be doing at any moment in the day. There is a bit of back and forth about technology, yada, yada, yada. Oh. How accurate are these? What is the percentage of right and wrong? I'm afraid we don't know that. Why not? Oh, twice we programmed our machines for a percental appraisal of their own efficiencies. Each time they refused to give back the requested information. Refused? How? Simply by not returning the data to us. They'll be wanting their own trade union next. These are demi-jokes. I don't know what they are. Uh, um, and at this point, this um, lithe, blonde, spectacled, with baby blue yeah. eyes, Chris, baby blue eyes, uh, hits the button with his foot. No fusty umbrellas for this number two. No fusty mm. umbrellas for Darren. He is a man yeah. of action. He is lithe and... Um, Crouched yeah. for employment, as they say in Henry the Sixth. 
What did you think of his hair? Were you troubled by his hair, or were you? Uh, okay I I that? mean, it's a little bro creamed, but like this is the it's time. Sort of swept. Yep. Upwards yep. in a weird mm-hmm. style, and it also reminded me of a little bit of like the one U two tour where Bono dyed his hair blonde for some reason. It was really troubling. I didn't like it. Okay. He looked a little Nesbitesque mm, mm, in that way. Mm. It's a little. It's a little. Uh, it was a little um, fusty. Mm. Is that? <laughs> That Glenn, is, is there a is there a waterfall near you? I have I went up to him. I remonstrated Are you this him from the lazy river at King's Dominion. Glenn? I remonstrated my husband ride? for flushing <laughs> while ah. I am taping. Whilst whilst, whilst taping, whilst, whilst I am taping. <laughs> How dare you flushing? I would hit the I would hit G at the end. There would hit yep. the edge. All right, so. The uh, activities prognosis predicts that six will buy candy. There's a lot of back and forth here about, oh, your, your prognosis doesn't matter. Like, oh, he it's not. He never eats sweets. He never eats sweets. He never eats candy. According to the prognosis. It doesn't matter about the prognosis. It's wrong. It doesn't work. It'll only take he a He does buy candy out. for a very sad old lady who is on the verge of tears because she can't have a sweet. I can't go through a day without sweets. But I must have them. For the last time, your week's credit allowance is all you... Sugar man, it's toxic, right? But I can't go through an entire day without my sweets. I'm sorry. Yes? Sorry. Um, Back of candy for the lady. That lady is a drug addict. Exactly my point. It's going to kill you. Oxycontin is what she is asking God. for. She was not asking for some fucking smarties or whatever, uh, whatever he buys for her. She was. I think he just he just doesn't understand the but. verge of tears because she can't eat like I don't know like sweets, and they're yeah. probably like those British nasty hard boiled like gross sweets <laughs> sweets that are like no why would you why is this the yes. thing you're gonna why is this the hill you die on old lady Yeah, in 1967 they were still going through the ones that were issued to World War One soldiers uh, <laughs> right. on their on their way to the front. They're and, made uh, with uh, lard. if you find yourself in a gas attack, uh, <laughs> put this in your mouth. <laughs> They're made with gutta percha. Okay. Between 11:40 and 11:50, he will arrive at the gymnasium for his semi-weekly kosho practice. That's it. It's back, baby. In all its stupidity, kosho. I love it so much. It goes on and on and on. As we've discussed, (laughs) 100 goes and replaces his watch during this match. Chris, they could have just used the pulsator, knocked him out at night, gone back into his apartment, replaced his watch. Why? There's so much. This episode goes to great lengths to show us how much time and effort and technology are at the village's disposal to calculate the precise best time to replace his fucking watch. That is such a long walk (laughs) to get to this point. Why go to all this trouble? You could just replace it at night. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. But in your proposed revision, the dramatic script tightening that you propose, who then would wear the the pink blazer? If we get rid of number 100, Mm. who's wearing the pink blazer? Okay, so I'm I'm mildly colorblind. I did not notice there was a pink blazer here. Oh, my God. Oh, no, no, no. Glenn, it is. It stands out. Is it? it? Really? Yeah. Uh, Number 100? Mark Eden? pink. Mark Eden. It is, yeah. No one else has a blazer like this. I just figured it was white. Okay. 
All right, so it looked white to you the way the way like Charlie Curtis's uh, flapjack Charlie's, but okay, all right. Um, no, that's interesting, and I, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but but no, I'm telling you, it was it was pink, it was uh, notable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like so much so that you like I need some in-universe explanation of why he's sort of wearing a uniform, but sort of not. Like it's not it's it's clearly not his casual streetwear, mm-hmm. but it doesn't match the uniforms that we've seen any of the other villagers or, or village officials walking around in. Mark Eden, by the way, had another Magoon horror story. Oh, good. Their fight scene, he said he thought Magoon was really trying to strangle him later on. Like oh, he said man. he could see the veins popping out of his face. And oh. he was like, you know, there's a way to make it look on camera like you're trying to strangle <laughs> me without actually cutting off air to my brain. Now, in Magoon's defense, Mark Eden said, you know, I've done a lot of my own stunts. I was quite fit in those days. And then by example, he said, I did a lot of fight scenes with Roger Moore. Now, I can't say that I've ever really found any Roger Moore fight scene super credible, so I I can't really blame Magoon for wanting a higher standard Mm. of verisimilitude than uh, Mark Eden was used to (laughs) with uh, Sir Roger. Yeah, he he said it was terrifying doing a fight scene with Patrick Magoon because Magoon did not understand that stage fighting is not actually trying to kill the person. Yeah, you'd think that he would because he's a big stage actor for a long time. Also, like when they knock over that bench... um, that's both of their stunt doubles, right? That's not either one of them. Actually. I think that's right. Okay. All right. So Six goes to the watchmaker, and there's this thing with, like, his lens, like, looking through the thing. Which yep. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if the scene with Peter Cushing in the books, as the bookstore owner in Top Secret is a kind of homage to this scene because it really seems yeah. like it lines up very much. Okay. Well, now we're doing a Top Secret episode, so uh, thanks oh, we, for bringing that in. We totally got it. Assmaster. So he has left the triggering device for a bomb out, just out, just out while he goes and fixes the watch, which would be so dumb if it wasn't part of Plan Division's Q, Master Plan. Um, the watchmaker fixes his watch, and after he leaves, 100 steps out from behind the door, and he and the watchmaker, who are both jammers, theoretically, yep. uh, discuss their... Um, so you're talking plan. about, sorry, Glenn, are you, you, so you mean like at the point in Wilco's right, where they brought Nels Klein into oh, the I band around 2003, 2004, <laughs> and now Wilco has a full-time member with a, like a double neck guitar in the lineup and they start playing songs like Handshake Drugs, wow. like every goddamn show, you know, you're going to get like 11 minutes of Handshake Drugs in a, every Wilco concert from here on out. Okay. That's what you mean by jammers, right? You just went full Miss Ogmar, like 30 seconds. (laughs) I do not understand what you're saying. Wait, is the teacher in Peanuts, does she have a name? Miss Ogmar, yes. Get out. What's your source on that? Um, The fact that they call her Miss Ogmar in every strip. Yes. Do they? Yes. Okay. Okay. In the strip, not in the television. Mm, I don't know if they ever visited her in the cartoons. I'm going to check Memory Alpha or whatever the fucking Peanuts wiki is called (laughs) because I've never... (laughs) Chris, I am I didn't know that. so right. I am so... I, I, I bask in my rightness. <laughs> All right. So um, he meets number 50 outside. And at this point, number six tries to smile at her. <laughs> and his facial muscles revolt. And yep. it he can't. He just cannot. He, there is a deleted scene 
from Terminator 2, Glenn. Okay. Eddie Furlong right. is trying to teach Here Arnold, his buddy, his pet robot, a boy and his Terminator. Mm-hmm. He is trying to teach Arnold how to smile so he won't seem like such a dick to everybody. And we know, we know that Arnold Schwarzenegger can actually smile. He can be very charming. He has a lovely smile, as we've we've seen in, in his uh, dotage, all, all of his social media videos about... His uh, dotage, Chris? His dotage? Yeah, that's that's kind of harsh. What? He's, well, you know, he's retired from politics. He's retired from movie That does not put a person in his dotage. Dotage means like they're kind of losing it a little bit. Okay. No, I I love him. I love old Arnold. I understand you uh, do. His dotage. So clearly, no, this is a guy who knows how to give a warm smile, but he does in in this scene that, I mean, it's only like like It's a Richter's grin. It's a Joker grin. Don't know why they didn't leave it in the movie, but it's it's a great laugh. It is a genuine laugh where you see the T-800 trying to... uh, curl his lips up in a, uh-huh. a way that a human would find disarming. Uh-huh. It's wonderful. It's a great visual gag. It's a great fake smile. And I can only assume he learned it from watching Patrick McGowan. Right. Of course. Uh, she reveals herself to be the watchmaker's daughter, which is what the script calls her. Uh, number two then has a discussion with an underling that, after all, Plan Division Q is murder. But that plan is to get number six to come to two to warn him that there's a plot to assassinate him. This is very important to their whole plan Mm -hmm. division Q. Six and 50 then go to the watchmaker to urge him not to carry out his plan. Uh, Six is urging nonviolent rebellion here, um, which you're going to put a pin in this till we get to fallout. (laughs) Well, that's the, yeah, sure. Yeah. That's easy for him to say when, uh, according to Leo McKern anyway, he can make even getting dressed in the morning look like an act of rebellion. Right. Exactly. Not all of us have that gift. Nope, that's true. And this is coming, his urge for nonviolent rebellion, not to do murder, not to do assassination, is mostly out of concern for his fellow villagers, which is one reason I like this episode, Chris, is because he is treating, and the episode treats, his fellow villagers as people and not like sheep, mindless sheep. No, he's deeply worried about uh, collateral damage. Yep. There is a Terribly a lot of faffing around with cameras in number two's office, which we don't need because we just assume that number two's office is constantly monitored. Why do we need uh-huh. checking in camera one, checking in camera? Like, why? Why? This is and, and while they're doing that. this, you would think that the, the musical scoring under this moment should be a little suspenseful. Like, oh, the fix is in. They're getting their plan mm-hmm. together. And it's playing that loungy cue, like that da-da-da-da, da-da-da. Like, it seems like you're, the guests should be walking out on The Tonight Show to go sit next to Ed McMahon. <laughs> yep. the, and they play this hey, cue Doc. so many times. Yep, like, yeah. yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Uh, we get a little walking here as, as Six walks across the village. He walks across the Lucite map of the village with his bout. We're following beep, the pacing beep, ball. Beep. Yep. Six eventually comes in and warns Two. Two dismisses it. And I really, I love this performance from number two. I love everything. Just looking over the, his lenses at number two, uh, number uh, six and be like, oh, how dare you? This what? is not a comedy. Why are you playing it as comedy? Exactly. <laughs> this is why I love it. When Six leaves, we, he makes sure that everything, all the cameras caught it. So at this point, number two and number 50 commiserate, and there's an announcement. Mm-hmm. And yes, they indulge in some some sugar cubes in their, in their coffee. Again. Apparently they do. Mm-hmm. And it's the smarmy lady we love. It's it's the... Vanilla you, Fielding. Nope, say it, say it. It's Vanilla Fielding. Vanilla Fielding. Can you model say it again. clay? Vanilla Fielding? Vanilla Fielding. Vanilla. No, I'm not saying you mispronounce her name. I'm saying say it because you deserve to say it, Glenn. Oh. Uh, I'm not a wine guy, and I think one reason that I'm a beer guy, not a wine guy, is because wine people talk about something called 
mouthfeel. I knew, I knew where you're going. I knew where you're going with that. I knew exactly where you're going. And the only concept of that that I have is just how pleasant it is to say Fenella Fielding. Fenella Fielding. Can you model in clay? Yes. (laughs) We love her. She's announcing Appreciation Day, dedicated to honoring the brave men Uh who lead Uh us. There will be a monument unveiled, as well as quote unquote speeches thrills and excitement yeah um, <laughs> you had me at speeches <laughs> i mean like speeches is when i check out but that's that's her so that night they break into the watchmaker's place with with like flashlights even though she probably has a yeah. key this is a great set i i can only assume there are like lots of other itv shows where they go to a fucking clock shop because <laughs> this is such a good i mean clocks in every corner of the frame and also a scale like, a, yeah, like he's yeah, repairing yeah. a scale. Yeah, really, really good. I, I hope they got more than one use out of this set. That night they find a, repl- a replicate of number two's great seal of office, which is a bomb, which is uh-huh. remote triggered with a plastic explosive. Exactly the same dimensions as the clay cast of my hand that I made in kindergarten and then okay. painted gold and presented to my parents as a gift. This thing is bigger than the alarm clock that Flavor Flav wears around his neck. It is. It's about the same. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good reference. Yeah, you're actually right. It's about the same size, actually, isn't it? Yeah. As is the explosive charge that we see that the watchmaker has has put within it. We're going to get some suspense later on about the number two who's supposed to get off. And like we have a limited window in which to detonate this charge that is... Is the word concealed, Glenn? When this, when this explosive charge is itself the size of a Sony sports Walkman circa 1986. Oh. Um, concealed? Okay. Well, it is a large, large medallion. Looks like you're looking at a real strained neck if you wear this thing for any any length of time. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there's a thing that's like, we have, to, we have to detonate it while number two is still wearing it. And you know, I did... I was only in Cub Scouts long enough to, to get the bear badge. I did. I did not get my explosive ordnance disposal badge. Sure, but that would take out everybody, right? It would take out everybody. Exactly. This right. is what I'm saying. This is not one of those little Mission Impossible three brain bombs that mm, uh, you mm-hmm. know only kills the person in whom it has been implanted. Like that. Yeah, this thing would have cleared out the fucking dais, and and I think most of the crowd. Yeah, right. This is a giant goddamn bomb. Right. It doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, so. Six goes to two to warn him, but finds all of a sudden an older number two, Andre von Gissingham, who, who claims to be, and this is a big deal. He claims to be the real number two who has been on leave, and all of these other number twos we've been uh-huh. cycling through have just been filling in for him, uh, yeah. including the Darren Nesbitt number two, who very confusingly is about to take over for him. Uh, this is a very ballsy move on the writer's part. Maybe it's the first. Is is this the first retcon we actually get? Like this is like, oh no, I'm the real number two. All these other people are pretenders. He has been told by that that number six has warned every interim number two about a plot to assassinate them. As proof, he shows him a montage of footage <laughs> of not Leo McKern and yep. not Mary Morris. Were those people supposed to be lookalikes? Because so. that first the the first one looks kind of like Leo McKern, but not really. He looks like Leo McKern after Leo McKern has been on a like a liquid diet for like four weeks <laughs> okay. or something. And okay. the other one, okay, the other one kind of looked a little bit like number fifty eight from from Free for All. Not nearly as hot, Glenn. 
not nearly as smoking hot. I but, think she's but, supposed uh, to be. She, I think she's supposed to be the Mary Morris. I think she's supposed to be like she's she's a brunette. She's I got short. Th- she's got short brunette hair. Okay. She's got I the thought hat. she looked more like Rachel Herbert than like Mary Morris. But. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Listeners should take my word for this because you're you're colorblind. You, you <laughs> it's said true it yourself. I am. No. I am color challenged, Chris. I am. I'm I, sorry. I, I'm a, yeah. But anyway, this is a deep fake. Um, so now, which I want to say, okay, so this number two, the real number two, the freshly back from Lee. This is a two, huge so fucking deal. He's, he's like, and I mean, this is a minor point. I'm really being petty here. But it says to number six, are you suggesting that this footage has been doctored? I mean, it's a fucking montage. Obviously, it's been doctored. Even <laughs> even if it was depicting authentic events, like you weren't just capturing 20-second increments on different days. Of, so, yes, obviously. Like, this is this is like when that, that guy, when they were figuring out the location of the village, was like, oh, you know, west of Morocco, possibly an island. Yeah. 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 You think so? You think it's possibly an island? <laughs> so the, the montage of... Various number twos who number six has supposedly but not really warned about threats on their life. Pseudo McKern, pseudo Mary Morris, the coy advance yep. of, uh, of number twos. Basically, they're stunt doubles. It's clearly they're stunt doubles who, who or they're, they're stand-ins, right? They're, they're people who would, yeah. like they would pose under the lights. Which, which again, I mean, given, given Leo McKern's uh, in-canon incredible hip mobility, boy, finding a double for him. Yep. I wouldn't want that job. So now Six finally pieces together this elaborate ruse, this this plan, this uh, plan fiendish in its intricacies. Uh, the oh. village wants to kill the outgoing number two. But again, why should we care about this guy? We've never met this guy. We're, we're now invested in yeah. this guy's life. Who cares? But they don't want to be implicated, so it sets up the watchmaker to do it and ensures that should Six get a wind of it, and they're going to ensure that Six does get a wind of it, his efforts to warn him off will be ignored because they know that Six is a man of integrity. And if they get him to uh, buy into it, then, right. then it will be whatever. Okay, so the old number two starts to suspect that something is up. We shouldn't care what this guy does. We don't shouldn't care okay. about this and guy. You're t- you're, when you say the old number two, you mean the, like, the biologically old number, old number two who we've just met, right. not Darren yep. Nesbitt. So number six tells number two, which is uh, the plan, which is it will be detonated by radio. Uh, number two is helpless. And what I like about this, that the show doesn't really push too much, but the idea is that the when the ceremony ceremony takes place without the seal, number two is a guest. Like, but the seal is the ceremony. Like the idea that this guy is so complicit, this guy is so bought into the system that even if it means his death, he will go along with it. That's a thing that you probably you turn up the volume on that a little bit, yeah. as opposed to having yeah, yeah, yeah. it be like a C plot here. Nesbit two gets a couple scenes where he's talking to number one, assuring him that all of this is going perfectly as planned, and then finally it's appreciation day. Uh-huh. But it's a male loudspeaker guy. It's not the woman. I that's hard. I oh. want it to be. Yeah. I want it to be. Yeah, I know. Um, let's all pay pay tribute to our dear number two who. Check by math here, Chris, has been on leave for months at least. I mean, like, how long has this guy, if, if he know. is the dude, if he is the main number two has been running the village forever, and all these interim number twos are just like the constant turnover, like the constant, like, right. Jeopardy replacement hosts. Yes, and they like, are freely elected every every 12 months, remember. The oh. fuck, right? <laughs> like, uh, 
it's positing that this village has been run by number two, this number two, for a long time, and that all these replacements have been cycling through are just a kind of hiccup yep. in the mm-hmm. village's timeline. Yep. Which is such a big swing if you're a writer. Such a big swing yeah. to say, oh, no. But, but clearly, like, I mean, all of uh, number six's uh, self-reported indices of, of how long he's been there, totally unreliable. I mean, the dude yeah. is drugged constantly. He's electronically hypnotized every goddamn night. He is uh, visual and oral. Uh, yeah. yeah, he has no idea how long he's been there. But will you give me this much, Chris, that this idea mm-hmm. that there's one number two and then all these other people are kind of like mm-hmm. interim... That kind of ties the show's allegory behind its back because the idea of the show, and this is one of one of the allegorical things I like that doesn't push too hard. Like the idea is there's this ceaseless churn of figures in authority. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who is in power because the power structure doesn't change. Like these these faces change right. all the time. Right. And if there's one dude who's the guy, and then all this is just a hiccup. Like I don't, I don't, I think it's right. No, I mean, even if it's someone awesome, like, say, Ian McKellen, we're not going to give a shit if it's the same guy through the whole thing. Exactly. Right. All right. So at the ceremony, 6 and 50 discover the watchmaker up in the bell tower (laughs) because he's got binoculars. Uh, Yeah, because it's, uh, I don't know, this radio transmitter, it's, 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 uh, I mean, I think they're like radio signals. They do kind of need line of sight. Do they? I didn't know that. Depends on how strong the trend is. Not like, say, a rifle would, which is, again, <laughs> uh, mounting your assassination plot from the bell tower seems a little yep. like. They run to stop him. And Chris, help me out here. I couldn't quite. I, I went back and rewound this a couple times. Does Six hit him or does he just collapse because of old? Why? Why? Why does the watchmaker do whatever he doesn't? Uh, I'm guessing it's because Magoon was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hit this old man like he's a <laughs> heavy bag that I built myself out of found materials in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> he's got some sawdust, got some sand. He's, a, yep. he's, a, he's an old German made yep. of sand. I know every nut and bolt and cog, bolt and cog. of this double-ended bag. My own hands. Hunter comes up and there's a fist fight for control of the remote trigger bullshit right. thing. And this this is presumably where Patrick McGowan does his level best to actually kill Mark Eden. <laughs> right. There's some grass stains going on. Uh, the seal has. They're, they're playing the old... some real, real grab ass. That's playing some real grab ass. The seal has at this point passed finally from old number two to the new number two, the younger number two, the blonde number two, the baby blue eyed number two. Uh, six comes up and hands the remote detonator to the old two, who, if you clock it, mm. runs to the helicopter in about fifteen seconds. Like, <laughs> like he says, "Go to the go to the helicopter," and then. 15 seconds later, number number six is looking up at like, oh, the helicopter's leaving yep. now. That's He mm-hmm. is pretty spry for an old dude. Yeah. Explain to me, Chris, why six doesn't use this opportunity to escape himself. Why does he not do that? Why would he not? Why? Why would he not do that? Yeah, right? Uh, right? Because he, right? he has a water skiing appointment tomorrow morning, Glenn. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, if you're a no-show for one of those, uh, trying to get back into the rotation, really difficult. You 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 go right to the bottom of the list. Yeah. You're not going to get handed a better opportunity to take this fucking helicopter and leave the village. Yes, and, and they will, you know, as number two keeps saying, oh, they'll find me wherever I go. But, like, it, you could leave now. Mm-hmm. That's a thing you could do now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, I mean, I guess number six is, is suddenly concerned about what happens to his fellow villagers in a way that we, we have not seen before. Like occasionally, this, this show gives us effective demonstrations of the threat that hangs over everybody, like uh, the uh, Dutton. Dutton, Roland Walter Dutton from from Dance of the Dead. Like, yeah, like I, I yeah. actually felt fear for what was, and I felt his fear of, of knowing mm -hmm. what, what his, his fate was going to be. Mm -hmm. But generally, we just don't, we don't see enough bad, scary things happen to the villagers here, mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, I understand that, that a, a big part of this is, is that they have accepted their fate. They're perfectly happy in their gilded cage their colorful cage and they're you know they don't mind the, the the curfew and because they can still sneak out and go down to the the beach and there are big band concerts and uh, so they have yeah. they have uh, pursuits to uh, give them comfort in their confinement but um yeah i still think this show should should let us see something really gnarly and awful happen to a villager now and again to uh, remind us that they are I supposedly mean, they living in fear they had the dude in the bucket hat in the first episode who got killed by Rover. Yeah, they Waldo. Had... Waldo, yeah, Waldo. They do keep, you know, killing or offing folks who are not, who are inessential to the plot. But yeah, my main gripe with this episode, which I liked a lot, was that there's just more plot than is necessary. All this business to figure out when to switch his watch is just not necessary. It's not. It's like it's meant to feel like a steel trap. Like, oh, we've got it such isn't. Look, but look. this this process based stuff. I think it hooks me more than it hooks you. In one of his screenwriting books, William Goldman talks about how uh, George Roy Hill, who, who you know who directed Butch and Sundance and and directed The Sting, and so like like he talked about how audiences love how to. Um, like any, and, and William Goldman even used a, to illustrate this, he used this anecdote about some, some guy in the, I don't remember when in the sixties or sometime, but some just like random dude with no special credentials or skills or anything just wandered into Buckingham palace, like in this, what was supposed to be a totally secure area. And he just walked in and no one stopped him. And Goldman said he was fascinated by this because if he put this in a script, no one would ever believe it. Like, you know, I need, I need to invent this nine stage plan that by which he is going to infiltrate Buckingham palace. I don't know. That's just the, the magic of storytelling. So if you tell me that there's something important about this watch and it's vitally important that I'd get this watch out of a locker and replace it with another watch, I'm sort of hypnotized by that. Like, mm. even though I, yeah. And that, that kind of granular A leads to B, leads to A, B, and C, leads to free-for-all, leads to... Right. Yeah. No, I, sure. I, just, I think I get more seduced by that than, than you do, generally. I would if A led to B led to C, but mm. A leads to A. He yeah. just... They could have just <laughs> knocked him out and replaced. Well, his also, watch I was, I was at home. as uh, this watch switcheroo was being committed. I was somewhat hypnotized by uh, number one hundreds. Again, very loud pink blazer, which you Couldn't have a you. natural immunity against. Nope, nope. You are, you are proof. Yes, I am. I am. I am uh, immune to that. Glenn, Chris, what is your rating for "It's Your Funeral"? I like this episode a lot. I love the whole idea of jamming. I think it should come back. I like seeing the people outside six are also, you know, whenever the whenever the villagers are not depicted as idiots, but independent free thinkers and not cabbages, cabbages then I, I like the movie. I, I'm going to give this six out of six. It's one of my favorites. Six out of six for, for It's Your Funeral. Wow. And how much of that is down to uh, Nesbitt? Well, I mean, you know. Darren Nesbitt. I love anytime there's uh, hate cruising in the village. Anytime we discover some of the 
Some of the yeah. major village cruising spots, I'm all for that. In the documentary, in Don't Knock Yourself Out, when we see Nesbitt circa, I guess, you know, 2007, 2008 was when, when this was shot. Not only did he expand with age, but his, his blonde hair darkened. Glenn, I'm sorry happens, to tell you. Happens to all of us, some at age 19. So I'm not going <laughs> to hold that against him. Very well. I'm going to concur with you on this, buddy. Uh, this is a dirty half dozen, a six out of six from me for It's Your Funeral. I love Darren Nesbitt, despite his professed confusion and uh, the opacity of the stakes for him. I think he was great and layered and charming and fun. I love Kasho, this made-for-Nickelodeon sport in 1967 with only moderately racist overtones. And, of course... If I didn't give uh, the maximum score to an episode in which Six makes his own gym out of found materials, I would be a different person. And then <laughs> there's jamming. Obviously, obviously, I love jamming. I really love the idea of jammers. I wish, like, if this show went another season, it would be all jammers all the time. Like, mm. th- that is so a hold on a second, Glenn. Or, wait a minute. Now, now, are you saying you prefer the incarnation of the E Street Band where they have both Nils Lofgren and Steven Van Zandt <laughs> oh, playing guitar? Go. Like Initially, Nils was Little Steven's replacement, but when they were both in the band, and plus Patty plays guitar on some of that too, so we've got four fucking guitar slingers in this lineup now, Glenn. In the 1999 to present E Street Band, what I hear you saying is that that is your preferred incarnation of the E Street Band. Uh, Chris, when I say yeah. this, I mean it. I, I, I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it. <laughs> so next up, next up is, what is next up? Are we finally doing Living in Harmony? I think we're doing, li- no, I think it's not uh, Living in Harmony. No, I think it's next I don't know. Is, I think we've, we've pretty much covered a, a, I think a, a change of mind a is A change next, of mind. Which I do not like. I remember not liking very much because, again, it's one of those episodes that treats the villagers like mind the sheep. Well, it's directed by one Joseph Surf, so that sounds very promising. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Uh-huh. Subtle. So yeah. that's the thing uh, I love about I, the show I is mean, how subtle if it is. There's one thing we know about the filmography of Joseph Surf is that um, he sees <laughs> a, a, a lot of the characters who populate his stories as mindless cabbages. They're, they're produce to him. Mm-hmm. And rotting cabbages. <laughs> also that. Yeah, I mean, this might be another general. I don't know. I haven't seen it in uh, literally four decades, but who can say? The number two in this one, uh, um, again, I'm just looking at a still photo of him. He is, uh, I his name, but he um, he looks like that guy who was in a bunch of 90s movies. You know, in, in Total Recall, where they, where nope. they send... Oh, cool. I don't. You, you referenced Total Recall before I did on this podcast. Yeah, I, I know. know you have okay. seen Total Recall. I I, I've seen it once. But once, the guy who it. wanders in to try to convince Doug Quaid that this is all a hallucination in his mind oh, and he God. needs to give up the gun because he's about to have an embolism. And, but then Quaid sees the little bead of sweat coming down the guy's temple and is like, no, no, I need to shoot you. And then uh, Chris, I love you like your brother. You need to get different references. <laughs> you need to get different references. <laughs> <laughs> I think my, you know what? I, I'm going to invite some some enterprising listener to catalog the references that I have deployed in this podcast. Yeah, I, mean, I gave you fucking Shahrazad last episode, Glenn. I mean, that's a true. good, high minded reference. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm not going to say it's not. Just because I'm deploying a lot of straight dad rock references on this episode <laughs> doesn't mean that there are fact, not you fresh are. references. 
<laughs> I mean, they're, they're... kind of, by definition, it does. <laughs> by, by literal definition, it does. Uh-huh. All right. So a change of mind. Don't care for it. Don't care for it. Don't know it. Don't remember it, but don't care for it. Unmutual. Unmutual. Fuck yes. You. The, the uh, show that almost gave us the title of our podcast. Which I rebelled against because I hated this episode. Okay. Well, but now people need to wait even longer to get to the episode that gave us the title of our podcast because it's uh, Once Upon a Time, which is the penultimate episode, even though it was supposed to be, appropriately enough, number six in the running order. No, it's not true, is it? Really? Well, that's where Alex Cox... Am I too presumptuous if I say friend of the show, Alex mm. Cox? Mm-hmm. He puts it at number six. Huh. I mean, that has a kind of meta power to, to say Certainly. it's the episode number six. Right. I mean, there were a lot of episodes that were jockeying for the, the follow-up position, the executive yeah. officer position, so many potential second episodes. I, why are we not fighting over the sixth episodes? I don't understand why... Like. Degree Absolute is the we're going to break him if we don't do this episode. How could there be any episodes after that? Oh, because Degree only... Absolute, right. No, I mean, it's the uh, two, two men enter, one man leave. It is the psychological right. Thunderdome of the prisoner. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That the uh, folks who are just following along with us, who haven't seen the show yet, who are following along with us because we love them. We love you for following along with us, even though you haven't seen where the show goes. I had a conversation last night with someone who told me that that she could only stick with like 15 minutes of arrival, but I love your podcast. She's like, I've listened to every episode of the podcast and I have that watched make any sense. 25% of one episode of The Prisoner. <laughs> Makes no. no sense. Makes no sense at all. Yeah. People are strange. People are strange. Whether or not you're a stranger. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps you or both of us will, will experience a, a change of mind in the ensuing seven days. Okay. What do you got, buddy? Let's, let's hear yours. <laughs> I mean, unmutual, unmutual. Yeah. Ugh. Well, what if there was an insurance company called Unmutual Life? Okay. All right. See, that's a, again, that's another. Uh, we're never going to get a sponsor. We're going to go back to peanuts because they were mutual <laughs> life. That's 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 what they did. Uh, all right, buddy. Well, do Miss Utmar? I'm, I'm blows my mind that she has a name. She do. She do. Wow. I bet that reference would confound most people. I don't think it would. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> We're going to test this hypothesis in the field. Uh-huh. Till then, Glenn, be seen. Be seen, yo. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. You may or may not know that Glenn is the author of the forthcoming NPR podcast Startup Guide, where he's right. been encouraged to keep the language simple and explaining why you should avoid surfaces like hardwoods or tiles when recording 
and use textiles to prevent echoes. Our show, Glenn. Glenn, <laughs> this this show is fifty percent mine. <laughs> Controlling interest. Okay, <laughs> I've got the receipts. Uh-huh. This champagne is burnt, Glenn. Yes. Okay. Now, just uh, there's some creatine in this water, and sometimes the powder gets a little. Uh... Mm-hmm. Uh, back and buys, back and buys, dude, back and buys. <laughs>